0: Listeners, welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries' Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Pym and I'm the host of this program. When reading the four Gospels, you can see the great crowds that follow Jesus. Especially when Jesus feeds the 5,000, this number is only counting the men. If counting all the women and children, the numbers may exceed well over 10,000 people. Looking at a church nowadays, if the congregation gathers over 10,000 people in number, it is considered a big congregation. Back then, there weren't any cell phones, televisions, or internet, but it's amazing to see how the people heard about Jesus and followed him. In John 6, the people who experienced Jesus' miracle when he feeds the 5,000 continues to follow. But you can see that Jesus goes up to the mountain alone and sends the disciples off to the sea on a boat. The crowds then begin to search for Jesus here and there. The next day, the crowd stood on the other side of the sea, hoping maybe Jesus was on the same boat that the disciples were on. But in came a small boat from Tiberias with no disciples and Jesus. Then they themselves get into the small boats and go to Capernaum to seek Jesus, and eventually they find him on the other side of the sea. Jesus says something to his followers in a rather serious tone, It says in John chapter 6 verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. It says in verse 54, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. The message that he wants to deliver to his people is for us to not live off of the food of this world, but by the word that will allow us to endure to eternal life. In order to give us his eternal bread, his word, he came down to this earth, but instead found us working for the bread of this earth that will eventually perish. But listening to his words on this, the people could not understand him and argued against him. And the Bible tells us that as a result of this, many of Jesus' disciples that were following him withdrew and were not walking with him anymore.
1: Son was dead, the Savior of the world was fallen. His body on the cross, His blood poured out
0: During Jesus' ministry, countless people passionately followed him to wherever he went. But many of these people followed him solely for the purpose of their own benefit, such as getting healed or being healed. There are many Christians in the time we are living now. People follow Jesus. They go to church on Sundays, they go to revival services, and on Sundays, they serve in Sunday school, stand a part of the choir, and serve in any events the church holds and think because they do so much they are a Christian. Of course, these are all very precious servings. However, if the reason for me to serve and listen to God is different than the reason that Jesus Christ gave me, then we are still not a disciple and only a follower. Pastor Kyle Eidelman wrote in his book, although many people followed Jesus during his ministry, the number of disciples were little. Although there were many people who worked so hard to follow Jesus, The road they were following was a complete different road than what Jesus was directing. These followers may have thought, because they are passionately following Jesus as they hear his words, they were true disciples of him. But unfortunately, they weren't following him to the end. Jesus did not promise to us that we would live better lives or promise us a better future. Instead, isn't it the opposite? Jesus told us by following Him we would be resented by the world with persecution to follow. That is why in order to follow Christ, He tells us we must deny ourselves and take up our cross. Only those who are able to deny themselves will be able to follow Jesus to the very end.
1: Let it
2: be cheap
3: up next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is Spiritual Warfare, Part 2, based on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10-13. through 13. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy Keller.
4: If you say, oh, everything's the devil, or there's nothing the devil, you're actually, you've reduced things, and you really are, uh, you've got a simplistic understanding of what goes wrong. I often refer to this, well, I don't know how often. If you've been around, you've heard me refer to it before. But some years ago, I read a a sermon by Richard Baxter, who was a 17th century British Puritan minister, You know, 1600s. And he wrote a book on melancholy, which of course is our word, is is an old word for depression. And he was a very good pastor, and he knew how to work with people. And so the sermon says, well, what are the possible causes of depression, melancholy? And he named four. The first one, he says, well, it could be your depression is caused by the physical. It might have a physical cause, in which case what you need is medicine or food or rest to be something worth your body. Secondly, he says, there might be a psychological cause. You might be cast down in your temperament, and what you need then is lots of love and affirmation and just support. But number three, he says, there might be a moral cause. Uh, You might feel guilty about something, or you might be angry at something and maybe feel guilty about being that angry, and you need repentance, and you need forgiveness, and you need reconciliation. So it could be a physical cause. There could be a psychological cause. There could be a moral cause. Or he says there could be a demonic cause, which we're getting to here. Or it could be more than one, and they could be kind of interactive. Now, I challenge you to find anywhere, hardly, that level of nuance and balance because you see, almost everybody falls into one of the two errors that CSOS talks about, one of the two errors that, that Paul's trying to avoid. On the one hand, let's face it, you have a lot of Christians today who actually attribute so much to the devil. If you've got a problem, if you've got a temper problem, if you've got an anger problem, for example, it's the devil. We've got to do something about it. Well, wait a minute. What about the way you were raised? What about the bad psychology in you because of a, a, a bad family background? What about your physiology? What about there's something wrong with your chemist, chemical? No, no, it's all the devil. See so what you're doing, is, or, or, or maybe you're angry because you're refusing to forgive somebody and that's a moral issue and not a demonic issue. See, on the one hand, you've got, you've got believers, you've got Christians that are attributing too much. They're like, actually, weirdly enough, they would be upset to hear that, but they're like magicians, according to, to Lewis. In other words, they're... they're Everything is magical. Everything is occult. Everything is demonic. On the other hand, you've got what we have mainly in New York, and that is we don't believe in it at all. We give up on the whole thing. The whole idea is kind of silly. Both, both errors equally please the devils. They hail both with equal delight. Why? Because you're really not able to see all that they're throwing at you, all that life is throwing at you. Most people, if you're discouraged, depressed, there's a super spiritual approach. It's all the devil. There's, a, there's an under spiritual approach. It's you, know, it's, you know, just give a person medicine. It's, you know, it's the psychological and the physical. It's never the moral or the demonic. Oh my goodness. But Richard Baxter was biblical. Paul is being biblical. Are you being conformed to one of these errors? Stay out of them. It's, it's part of the method. It's, it's part of his devices. Stay out of those two errors. But now secondly, understand the two categories of lies. The devil. Do you know the word devil here? Uh, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil scheme. There's two words usually used to, just to talk about the devil. This is probably the most common one. It's the Greek word diabolos. And you say, oh yeah, I know that word diabolical. But maybe you don't because the word diabolos is a verb and it's a noun form of a verb and the verb means to lie and slander. Now you need to understand this. You need to get away from the error, we're too skeptical. That is, here in the West, we don't think the devil's ever involved unless the person's head is completely turning around, they're turning green, and they're vomiting. So Then, we, well, maybe that is the devil. You know, perhaps. Because the devil got in there somehow. The main way the devil works is he's a liar. The word devil means a liar. It also means a slanderer. John White wrote a book years ago, Christian counselor, and said, here's how the devil works. Take a, a piano and open up the top and sing a note into it. And whatever string your voice is attuned to, you know, most of us don't have perfect pitch, so we have no idea what note we're actually singing. But you can find out. Open up the top of the piano, sing a note in, and a particular note, will, uh, a string will vibrate. It's the string that's attuned to your voice. You haven't even touched it. You haven't touched the key, you haven't touched it, and yet it's vibrating to your voice. That's what the devil does. The devil cannot make a good person bad. The devil makes a flawed person worse. The devil plays on what's already in you. He aggravates what's already in you through lies. And that's the reason why, for example, it says in Ephesians 4, we actually saw it some weeks ago, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold. If you're bitter, that gives him the ability to aggravate and press you and push you. You've given him a foothold. It says in First Timothy, don't put a young man into the eldership because he might get puffed up with pride and fall into the snare of the devil. Pride helps you fall into the snare of the devil. Now, there's two ways in which Satan's lies, he says things to you. It doesn't necessarily mean he literally says things to you, that you actually hear a voice. Who's that? But rather, what he does, he stimulates talk that goes on in your heart. And there's two basic categories of those according to the Bible, temptation and accusation, temptation and accusation. Now listen. By the way, from here out to the end, you might get inspired, but I'm actually here to instruct and convict. So I want you to listen. I'm, trying to be very, I'm going to be as specific as I can in the next five minutes. Temptation and accusation. Temptation essentially gets you to have too high a view of yourself so you go and do things you shouldn't. Accusation is the devil's way of trying to get you to have too low and self-hating a view of yourself so that you go and do things you shouldn't. They're both ways of work. They, they both work. Temptation, in temptation, Satan is actually hiding from you God's holiness and how much he hates sin. He hides that from you. He plays up the love. But in accusation, he hides from you God's love. He plays up God's holiness and his wrath on sin, and he hides God's love. That's the reason why uh, John Newton, who was a very good pastor, was writing a, to a depressed young man who was a Christian, and who was very depressed, and he was under accusation. Because he was saying, oh, I'm so awful, I'm so awful, I'm so awful, God can't love me. And John Newton knew he was under accusation. He wrote this, he says, You cannot be too aware of all your inward and inbred sins, but you may be, indeed you are, improperly affected by them. Here's his main point. You express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is certainly right, but you also express too low an opinion of the person work and promises of the redeemer which is certainly wrong. Now, you say, "Well, how does this work exactly? Temptations, accusations are basically lies. Things that Satan leads you to think in certain ways and moves you to do what's wrong. One through overview, too high view of yourself, too low view of yourself, too low view of God's holiness and too high view of his love, too low view of his love and too high view of his holiness. How do those lies work? If you get a book by Thomas Brooks, also a 17th century Puritan, a peer of Richard Baxter. Thomas Brooks wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I have chosen, uh, he's got 50 or 60 or 70, but what I've done is I've chosen just a few from the temptation category and just a few from the accusation category just to give you the sense of how this works. So for example, he says, how does Satan tempt us? Here's eight devices. Ready? Listen. Listen. I'll give you the device and then I'll sometimes give you the self-talk that you might be saying to yourself. The first device is he shows you the bait and hides the hook. Which means he gets you to look at the, uh, the short-term pleasures of what this would do and hide from yourself the long-term misery of what will happen. Come on, you know that one. You don't know that one? Here's number two. By getting you to rationalize sin as virtue. I'm not really greedy, I'm just thrifty. I'm not really nosy, I'm just concerned. I'm not an alcoholic, I'm just sociable. Number three, by showing you the sins of Christian leaders. So you say to yourself, he did it too. Nobody's really that pure. Number four, by overstressing the mercy of God. So what you say to yourself is, do it. God will forgive you, that's his job. Number five, by making them bitter over suffering. So what you say is, I've suffered, I deserve this. By the way, you don't want to know one of the reasons that powerful, prominent men always are having these affairs? Because what they say to themselves is, nobody knows how hard I work and how many sacrifices I make, so I deserve this. That, that's temptation. Um, here's another one. By showing Christians how many bad people seem to be having great lives. And so the self-talk goes like this. I might as well do it. Playing by the rules doesn't pay off. And I'll just give you one more. This is only seven. The seventh one is by getting you to compare one part of your life to another. One part of your life to another. Look, I'm very good over here. I'm very good over here. I do all that. I do all that. It's okay that I do that. In fact, you want an extreme form of that? Mafia hitmen. I'm good to my mother. Okay, I kill people. But I'm really, really good to my mother. That's, That's not a joke, by the way. I mean, I knew you'd laugh. That's why I told you, but it's not a joke. Well, what about accusation? Here's four from the accusation arsenal. How does Satan accuse us? By causing us to look more at our sin than at our Savior. By the way, you know all the parenting books will tell you that if you give your child one compliment for every one criticism, if you give your child one criticism for every one compliment, the kids are going to grow up hating themselves. They're going to grow up hating themselves. You need to give four or five compliments for every criticism because the criticisms really lodge and the, and the uh, compliments don't. Uh, and there's reasons for that because it, it, the biblical reasons for that is we know there's something wrong with us. And so, the, so you, you've got to have a lot more compliments than criticisms. In the same way, what Thomas Brooks says is, for every one look at your sin, you need to take five looks at your Savior and the devil makes sure that doesn't happen. Number two, under accusation, by causing them, talking about Christians, to obsess over past sins that have done damage that can't be undone. Number three, by making Christians think that the troubles they're going through must be punishments. So you say, this wouldn't have happened unless God was mad at me. Number four, by making people think that the inner struggles and feelings they have, Christians couldn't possibly have. So you say, if I were a real Christian, I wouldn't be having these thoughts and desires. Do you recognize any of these? He's playing you. He knows what strings you've got. And he's vibrating them. You must not be unaware of his schemes. You must understand what he's out there doing. That's what we're fighting. The schemes of the devil. Now, number three. How do we fight? Yeah, you said, boy, you haven't left much time. No, I haven't. And it's partly because of the little bit of artificiality. We've broken the part of the text on spiritual warfare into two sections. This section basically gives you the problem. Here, I'd like to tell you two things you must do if you are going to fight successfully. All of these things that are being thrown at you. The one is, know what particular devices Satan uses on you. I will never forget the first time I read Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he's got all of these, these uh, devices. And basically, they're forms of self-talk, little... Things that you say to yourself in your heart on your way into doing something wrong, and I'll never forget how surprised I was that I remember three of them were things were, were things that I used to say to myself, always say to myself, and they always led to disaster. And I just finally got rid of them. I said I never say that to myself anymore. When my, when I start to think that, I said that's a dead end. Forget that. You know, disaster will happen now. So I no longer go there. And I realized that basically Satan had stopped. Trying those out because I'd gotten wise to them. And I found three more. So he's not stupid. He moves around, you know. He says, okay, okay. They got wise to me on that. Those three, fine. Okay, I won't go there anymore. These are the three. I said, oh no. Do you know which ones he's using on you? Do you know which yours are? See, he knows what your strings are. Do you know what your strings are? Do you know where you give him openings? That's principle one. Principle two. The gospel is the armor. And do you know why? Come on, let's do some theology here. What are the two things that he does? Temptation and accusation. He either gives you an overblown sense of God's holiness and minimizes his love so you hate yourself. Or he gives you an overblown sense of God's love and, under, and, and plays down the holiness so you go do things you shouldn't do and think everything's going to be okay and it's a disaster. He turns you into someone who either is crushed by a sense of your guilt or doesn't have enough sense of a guilt at all. Now, if you believe you're saved by living a good life, if you believe what all the other religions say, and that is basically, I will find God, I will, you know, self-actualize, I will be saved if I do these things and I do these things. Now, if you really believe that through your efforts and through your achievements and through your performance you can save yourself, then you will either sometimes feel like a sinner. Oh, I've failed. Or you sometimes feel loved and accepted because you feel like you succeeded. Either you feel like a sinner or you feel loved and accepted. But if you believe the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for you on the cross as your substitute, that he took the penalty for your sins so that when you believe in him, all of your guilt is put on him and absorbed there, and all of his righteousness and, every, and all of his record is brought to you so you're loved and accepted in him, then that means every Christian walks, walks around with those two facts in their mind at the same time. I am a sinner. In myself, I'm lost. And my sin was so great that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save me. Sin was so bad. My sin was so bad that God had to do that. Jesus had to do that. On the other hand, I'm absolutely loved. I'm completely accepted. I'm as loved now as I will be four billion years from now. He sees me in Jesus Christ. Now, do you know what that is? One of those facts completely demolishes temptation. If you understand the gospel, you know That the thing you're tempted to do, Jesus Christ died so you wouldn't do that. Jesus Christ was ripped from limb to limb because of this. How can you have anything to do with it? But on the other hand, when you're being accused, the other fact completely demolishes that strategy of Satan because you are absolutely loved and accepted. It's the gospel. You put on the gospel and it completely defeats the strategies of Satan. Let me just give you one example of the kind of talk that you have to, what it means to put on the gospel if you're accused, if you're feeling too guilty, if you're feeling like I'll never be what I should be, if you're feeling like a failure, if you're feeling uh, uh, you know, that, you are, uh, that God can't love you, other people can't love you, if you're down on yourself, this is what Thomas Brooks said, I'll close with this. Thomas Brooks, who was a wonderful, wonderful pastor, said this to people who were under accusation. He said... The remedy against this is to look upon all your sins as charged to the account of Christ. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. You know the wife who said to the bill collector, if I owe you anything, go to my husband. So may the believer say to justice or to the devil, if I owe you anything, go to my Christ who has underwritten me fully. I must not sit down discouraged, this is still Brooks talking, under the fear of those debts which Christ to the uttermost farthing has fully satisfied. The remedy against this accusation is to solemnly consider that believers must repent for their being discouraged by their sins. Believers must repent for being discouraged by their sins. It springs from the refusal of the richness, freeness, fullness, and everlastingness of God's love, and from the refusal of the power, glory, sufficiency, and efficacy of the death and sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ, and from the refusal of the worth, glory, fullness, largeness, and completeness of the righteousness of Christ given to you by faith. God did not give a believer a new heart for it to be rent and torn in pieces by discouragement. What is that? That's putting on the armor. And now stand. Do you know how to put on the armor? Do you know how to handle the things that are being thrown at you? We wrestle not only with flesh and blood, but with the gospel, we can stand. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us everything we need to uh, fight the fights that are in front of us. Lord, we know it's not just the devil. There's evil in us. That's the flesh. There's evil outside of us. That's the world. There's evil above us. That's the devil. We know things are complex. We can never blame everything on the devil. Oh my goodness, no. But we recognize the multidimensionality of sin. We recognize the spiritual dimension of it. We will not make the same mistake that our whole civilization has made for the last century of underestimating the power of evil and seeing that we wrestle not only with flesh and blood, but in Jesus Christ, you disarmed the principalities and power when you died on the cross. As the book of Revelation said, that when you accuse us, we triumph over the accuser with the blood of the Lamb. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us how to do that. Everybody in this room needs to find the ways in which devices are being used against them and to use the gospel in the peculiar particular ways they need to. Give them that wisdom, for we ask it through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.
5: to die i scarce can take In humble adoration and their proclaim My God, how great you are
0: Can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. There are people who gave up their lives in honor of Christ who gave us our everlasting life. Continued is a story of the many people who endured their life with faith. Titled The Voice of the Martyrs.
6: Hello, everyone. This is Rhonda Walker with The Voice of the Martyrs. Some people ask me if I am certain that I am saved. What is assurance of salvation? Is it simply telling yourself that since you believe in Jesus Christ, you are saved and going to heaven? Many people in this world often mistake such auto-suggestion as the assurance of salvation. Yet those who own true assurance of salvation must experience changes in their lives. One of the first changes is a change in values. Those who have an assurance of salvation no longer follow the values of the world. When a person has different values, he or she follows the newly changed value system in his or her life. Similarly, people who own the values of heaven live for Jesus Christ and are even ready to die for Jesus Christ. Those who simply tell themselves that they will be going to heaven can neither live nor die for Jesus Christ. Only those who truly have an assurance of salvation can live and die for Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 5 Apostle John tells us to possess an assurance of salvation. In other words, the assurance of eternal life. John says that it is possible to know that you have eternal life. With the assurance of eternal life, people realize that they are simply visitors in this world. Here is what God says. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have God's son does not have life. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. Records John in 1st John chapter 5 verses 11 through 13. I will be sharing a story of Pastor Manuel Camacho who had an assurance of eternal life and was willing to share it with his neighbors, despite the constant threat to his own life. The world was not worthy of him who had the assurance of eternal life and was willing to share it.
3: Hello, my name is Gloria Camacho, wife of Pastor Manuel Camacho. We live in Choapal village, located south of the municipality of Jose del Guaviare, in central Colombia, spreading the word of Jesus Christ, the only way, the truth, and the life. We have a very small population, yet people are violent, often armed as members of a guerrilla army. The murder rate in Colombia rates as the top in the world, even though it's dropped since 2002, to almost half of what it used to be. It was God's grace. As we started our ministry in this area, we witnessed many different changes. Many people left the guerrilla army, experiencing and practicing Jesus' love themselves. In this small village, about 60 people were baptized in our church, and 30 more newcomers were newly learning about Jesus Christ. But due to this very reason, We are under constant threat of attack by the guerrilla army. My husband, Pastor Manuel Camacho's sermon, weakens the local guerrilla army because those who are changed by the sermon are leaving the army. My husband always told me that in spite of all the threats, he would spread the gospel until his time was up. He even told the church members to continue the ministry even if he dies. He was a man of love and mildness, Not a person in our church showed any complaints toward him. This morning, I saw a horrible vision during prayer. My husband, Pastor Manuel, was murdered in the vision, leaving our two children and me. I could feel that his time was coming. This afternoon, I was spending time outside our house with our two children. My husband was coming out of the house, walking towards us. At the same time, three strangers approached towards us and I heard six shots. When I turned around in shock, I saw my husband falling to the ground. The shooter soon disappeared and my children and I ran to my husband to grab his body. Our neighbors and church members ran out crying and praying to God why he took our pastor's life so early. That moment, My son opened his mouth. Why are you all crying? My father is in heaven now. We must continue what he had been doing.
6: On September 21st, 2009, Pastor Manuel Camacho's short life of thirty-three years was ended by gunshots. However, because he had an assurance of eternal life, he was always prepared for his last moment. His assurance of salvation was handed down not only to his wife, but also to his children. After the murder of Pastor Manuel Camacho, Christians in the area served the church and spread the gospel with more passion than before. They all knew that Pastor Manuel Camacho always wanted to see his neighbors grow in Christ, so they decided to fulfill Pastor Manuel Camacho's last wish. The assurance this one person had of his own salvation was spread into his family and then the entire village. Without an assurance of salvation, a person cannot live for Christ. Those who cannot live for Christ cannot die for Christ. And the world is not worthy of those who die for Christ. We now conclude this week's episode of The Voice of the Martyrs.
0: What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who follows Jesus. However, it is not easy to say you follow Christ. The scriptures of Luke chapter 9 verse 23 tell us, And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What does it mean to deny yourself? It means to completely let go of yourself. yourself. To repeat, It means that I must die, that my ego and everything left of me needs to die. Then what does it mean for you to take up your cross? This means putting up my whole life in front of me. The word of Christ was not only for pastors and missionaries. Jesus specifically states for anyone to come after him. He is referring to us all. However, this road won't always be an easy path but the only reason we will be able to take it is because we have the Holy Spirit within us. And with the help of his strength, I believe we will all be able to make it to the very end. Peter denied Jesus not only once, but three times. But in the end, he denied himself, took up his cross, and followed Christ. The life we have left in front of us, I hope that all of our listeners will not be just followers, but true disciples of Christ and follow Him to the very end. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time again next week, and God bless.
7: Christ is my reward In all of my devotion Now there's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy Through every trial My soul will see No turning back I've been set free Christ is enough for before.